Good morning, family. So glad to see everyone this fine Sunday morning. Welcome again to River Valley Community Church. We are going to continue our series going through the Apostles' Creed uh, because we believe that this unites us, this grounds us in our historic faith. And so depending on how you grew up or what kind of back, uh, church experience you have in your background, sometimes people are like, oh, I know the Apostles' Creed. I have recited the Apostles' Creed many times. Other people are like, the Apostles' what now? And they don't really have a connection to it. But it's such a valuable tool that grounds us in our historic faith. That we are not the only ones that believe what we profess to believe on a Sunday morning. We're not the only ones that make up God's church. Actually, we are part of a historic tradition that expands for at least 2,000 years, and depending on your theology, even beyond. And before that, as God's people are made manifest and assembled together to worship Him. And so when we recite the Apostles' Creed together, we're placing ourselves in line with that historic faith, saying we believe that his church has expands the globe and spans through the centuries as he has moved people to worship him and know him. And so that's an important thing, I believe, and so that's why we're doing this series. And so before we dive in to this uh, statement we're going to examine today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for today, a day that we can worship you, a day we can assemble and praise your holy name with our brothers and sisters in Christ, a day that we can come together and know you are good and know that you have a plan for us and know your word as we read it together, reflect upon it together, and respond to it together. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word, as we look at our historic faith, that you bring it alive in our minds and our hearts that we can know you, that we can respond to you, that we can love you with all of who we are, that we can truly be your people and follow you as you have called us to follow you. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what defines you? That's a big question, right? What defines you? I feel like we're living in the age of self-discovery where we make movies and people talk about these movies being, oh, it's a, a movie of discovery or a coming to uh, maturity kind of story, but we're looking for something to define us. And people look for things to define us from all these various different places. Sometimes they look inside and they want to look inside themselves and say something about who I am defines me. Maybe it's my personality or, or you know, my physical attributes. But more often than not, people start looking outside themselves for something to define them. Maybe it's where they grew up, or their family, or the political party they belong to, or what they believe in, or something else, some, all these different isms they think might define them. And they look for these things to define who they are. But the problem with all these things that we look to to define who we are is that they're temporary. They're temporal. They are fleeting, and they all too often can't last, and they actually can't bear the weight of us trying to define ourselves by them. Because when we're trying to think of who we are and think about what defines us, we first have to ask ourselves, why were we made? And when we ask ourselves why we were made, we have to go, well, then who made us? And we have to know the person who made us and designed us, and so we can't actually define ourselves apart from God. And we start thinking about how do we define ourselves? One of the defining characteristics of this is the idea or the concept 
of who Jesus is. For that is what unites this church together. That is what brings churches together, who they believe Jesus Christ to be. That this idea, this concept, this profession of faith of Jesus is actually what separates Christianity from the rest of the faiths, belief systems of this world. That what we do with Jesus makes the biggest difference. Yeah, there's other beliefs that are different, and, and we believe different things about God, as Adam Blaylock mentioned last week, about we can call him Father, and we believe different things about salvation and how the world was made, and we believe all these different things, but they all trace their root back to this one question, what do we believe to be true about Jesus? Which is why when we come to the Apostles' Creed, the largest section right in the middle is all about who? Jesus. The largest section of the Apostles' Creed is all about Jesus because that is what defines Christianity. God the Father gets one little statement. The Holy Spirit, as this mentioned, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is where the focus is on this Apostles' Creed because that is what separates Christianity from everything else. When you read in Acts, you see actually that Christians, Christ followers, were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. If you can read that in Acts 11, verse 26. Most likely they're given this, this name, Christian, from their opposition. People kind of write them off. They believe in that, that sect of the following this Christ figure. But it's stuck. Why? Because they, the Christians themselves, Christ followers themselves, recognize this truly is what defines us and separates us from everyone else. Even nowadays, when people might not like the name Christian because they think it might carry too much baggage, political, otherwise, they still define them, themselves by who Jesus is. They call themselves Christ followers or disciples of Jesus or something along those lines because they recognize who we believe Jesus is defines who we are. And Jesus himself said this. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can, point to Math, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to read this account as Jesus asks maybe the most important question in the history of the world. This is Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. He says this. It says this. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He says to him, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. We read this account and then we see very clearly Jesus himself said, what we believe about Jesus defines us. What we believe about Jesus separates us from the rest of the world. Because when we look at who Jesus is, we have to come to recognize who he claimed to be. Who he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the one sent by God. He claimed to be the one who's going to save us from sins. And so what we believe about Jesus defines us. 
The apostles started preaching this right away. If we look in Acts 11 and 12, I mean, Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12, we see their disciples standing before the, the religious authorities and proclaiming, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus defines us. And so what we believe about Jesus defines us. And as Jesus himself said, this is the important question. Who do people say I am? Who do people say I am, he asked them. Because people were struggling to understand who this Jesus was. And, so people, and they replied, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, come again, or you're, you're Jeremiah or Elijah, you're, you're some of this other prophets, because people, they were struggling to understand who this person was. He spoke with authority. It was clear that he was connected to God in some fashion, and so they were like, well, maybe he's one of these prophets, come again, or maybe he, he was sent by God, but they're trying to place him in this structure of, of something they knew who he was. And the same is true today. People are struggling to understand who Jesus is. People will say all these kind of things about Jesus. They'll recognize, oh, well, he was a good teacher, or maybe he was just a prophet, or he, I mean, some people say maybe he's just a cult leader back then and, and started something. They're trying to struggle with, understand who he is. So many other uh, religions are happy to say, oh, Jesus was a prophet from God because they recognize you have to deal with with this figure, this person, Jesus. You have to wrestle with him because he truly carries weight. He's important. He spoke with authority and, and he sent ripples across history. And so they struggle with that. And we can, we can see the, the world engaging who Jesus could possibly be. But Jesus does not leave it talking about other people. He very quickly rules it to the personal but who do you say I am? Looking at his disciples, he say, who do you believe me to be true? Because he knew that what they believed about him, what we believe about Jesus, would define us. So let's talk about what we believe about Jesus. And we can just start with his name, Jesus. Jesus, his name means God saves or the Lord saves. Yahshua in, in, in the Hebrew it is the same name as what we would call Joshua. There's Jesus and Joshua are the same name. That might freak some people out. They're like, wait, they're not, though. But they are because Joshua is just an uh, a English version of the Hebrew, where Jesus is the Hebrew taken to the Greek and then probably the Latin to equal Jesus, translated to English. Just the ways those names traveled through translation made different names. But they're the same name, Yahshua, God saves. And so we knew, just, we know just by Jesus' name, kind of it denotes why he came. He came to save his people. It was what the angels declared to the shepherds. It was what the angel declared to Mary and Joseph. It was to give this name, this boy, this promised child, this name of Jesus, because he was to save his people. And so we see importance in his name. Kids' names are important, aren't they? If you had kids, you probably agonize over what we're going to name this child. And we kind of put some, uh, some stock in the name and we think about it and we, people you know, even think about, well, does it sound correctly with their last name? Or, or you, know, they might, you might think, well, we don't want to name them that because kids kind of might bully them or something because that's that, of that name. Or maybe you choose a family name to honor 
a family member or to remember tradition. Kids' names carry importance. When we were having our first kid, my wife and I had a deal worked out where I get to name, give him his first name and she get his middle name. We had veto power, of course. But <laughs> I chose Titus because I, it was a strong name. I, I liked it. It resonated with it. It's a, a biblical name. And who it represented in the Bible, I was like, yes, this is who I want my child to be. And so there's importance given to names. But we've seen through the Old Testament when we went through Genesis how even more than maybe we think about names, they really thought about names. And that their names really signified what they were for or what their their lineage or the circumstances of the birth. And so you can read in 1 Samuel about how Samuel was born and his, his mom, Hannah, gives him the name Samuel, which means the Lord listened or the Lord heard me. Why? Because she was not able to have kids, and so she prayed to the Lord, and the Lord gave her this child. And so she responded by naming him something significant, that the Lord heard her. You can think of Isaac when he was born, and Isaac means laughter. Why? Because there's that, all that laughter associated with him, and how Sarah laughed when God told Abraham that she was going to have a child, and then she laughed when this child was born and said, everyone was going to laugh with me because the promised kid is here. You think of Jacob, about how he's called Jacob, which means hill grabber, trickster. Why? Because he had the misfortune of being born grabbing his brother's heel. And so it signifies like she set the tone for his whole life. All this to say, names have meaning. So when we come to Jesus and he was born and God said, name him this, he communicated through angels and his parents followed suit and, and gave him this name, bestowed this name upon him. It was to denote to signify what he was here for. Pointing back to the Joshua who has lead his people into the promised land, now this Yahshua is going to lead his people to salvation. That his name has significance. But it's not only his name, Jesus. As the creed says, and as Peter himself, when we look at Matthew 16, he says, God, uh, Jesus asked, who do you say him? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And so the, the creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ. So often we, we say Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, that we start associating this Christ as his name. It's part of his name, right? That if you were going to go back to Nazareth or in the turn of the century, you might find a mailbox that said Christ Jesus or, you know, in, or something along those lines. But that's not true. It's not his name. It's actually his title. That Christ is a title. It's, the, it's again, the Greek word for, the, for Messiah. Both mean the anointed one of God. And so for, for Peter to say, you are the Christ, he was saying, you are the anointed one of God. You are the one God chose and who God sent. You're the one who carries God's message. You're the one who, who God's going to relate to his people. And this carries so much history for the, the kings of Israel and the prophets of old were all anointed by God to be his spokesman, to be his relationship with his people. And now here comes Jesus and he's called the Christ and it's signifying that he is not only like a king, not only a prophet who speaks on God's behalf, but he is something more. He actually is the promised child that we can look back in Genesis 3.15 and the promised child that was given to David that would reign on David's throne forever. He is the promised one that the whole Old Testament was expecting and waiting for. That he, in this person, all the promises given by God to Israel 
would be fulfilled in Jesus. That when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's making an intense, intentional theological confession. That you are the culmination of God's revelation. That before me stands the one that was promised and the one who's here that God's going to communicate through you and we know God through you for you have been sent by God and you can make God known. This means that when we say Jesus is the Christ, we mean that he's not just, he didn't spring out of nowhere. That we were given this whole book, the majority of the Old Testament, that points to this Christ, this Messiah, the anointed one by God who is going to save us. But wait, there's more. For Jesus, for Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That Peter recognized that Jesus was not just a normal prophet. Jesus was not just a normal dude standing before them, but that Jesus was sent by God, but yet also was God. It's a statement that that Jesus is fully, truly human and truly divine at the same time. And when we think about this in this language of the Son of God, it's hard for us to grasp because we start thinking, man, does this mean that Jesus was somehow made? Or Jesus was kind of birthed by God because he is the Son of God? And that's not where the Bible leads us. For the whole testimony of Scripture makes it very clear that Jesus is equal with God. Paul is wrestling this in Philippians 2. It says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. John, in the beginning of his gospel, says Jesus, the Word, was with God and was God. And then again again, we see in Colossians how all of creation was, came about through Jesus, that he was before everything, and it was for him. And this language again and again is showing how Jesus, this, this figure that we worship, is not just a created being or something Um, that God made, but he is actually God himself. Distinct from the Father, but still God. And so we recognize that this language, the Son of God, is not about how somehow Jesus is less than the Father, but is a term of relationship. That Jesus actually is related, connected to God the Father in a personal, intimate way. That Jesus is God himself. And we have to get this right for what we believe about Jesus defines us. There are people who get this wrong. They they kind of um, twist it a little bit. And whether it's the Mormon church or the Jehovah Witnesses, they, they place Jesus as a created being, something lesser than God. And once you do that, all of a sudden you get off track because it fragments the not only the Bible, but it fragments what we believe is possible that Jesus can do. For a created being cannot save us like we need to be saved. Only God can save us. And that's the importance when we, when we see this, that, that the Son relates to the Father in such a way that they're equal, and he provides salvation as only God himself can. And so that's why the testimony we say is that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, because as Truly human, he could represent us perfectly. He could stand in our place. He could represent humanity and take our punishment upon himself and give us the life, his righteousness, the life we did not live and cannot live. But as truly divine, he is the only one that actually can bridge that gulf between humanity and God. That sin has separated us. 
And no matter what human, humans want to do, they cannot bridge that gulf. We don't have the power. We don't have the willpower. We don't have the ability. But God has the ability, and he bridges that gulf by sending Jesus, the Son. The second person of Trinity steps down into creation to save his people. And he does this as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews would put it, that the Son of God brings many sons to glory. And that's a great thing when we start thinking about Jesus as the Son of God that we talked about last week, that we can God call God the Father. Why can we call, call God the Father? Because Jesus, the true Son, the only Son, came down to save us, to adopt us into his family so that now we have that privilege to know God the Father personally and relationally as we are meant to be, meant to know him. This is what it means to be son of the living God. It's a testimony of the church. A church father, Irenaeus of uh, Linois, said this, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. Jesus became what we are. He, he took on humanity so that we might be able to be adopted into God's family. Our whole salvation rests on this fact that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Because what we believe about Jesus defines us. But wait, there's more. For as the Creed puts it, He is our Lord. He's our Master, our, our, our Savior, but He's our Lord. And we know this language has been adapted by the Christian church. We, we talk about Jesus being our Lord and Savior. And this, this word Lord, karyos in the Greek, carries that meaning of a master. He, we recognize he's the head of the church. He is the one who made us and redeemed us. And so we submit our whole life to his leadership. But he is our Lord. But it goes further than that. For in the Old Testament, Lord is what the Jewish people called God. That Yahweh, the personal name of God, was too holy for them to utter. And so what did they do? They called him Adonai, which means Lord. And so when you, when you heard and read in the Old Testament, Lord, you're reading a, a declaration of who God is. And now these early Christians turn to Jesus and they call him Lord. Not just that he's our master, which he is. Not just that he, he directs our life, which he does. Not just that we follow him, which we should. But that he is God himself. And so we recognize that he is who he has, has proclaimed to be, God. And that so when we confess Jesus as my Lord, we only can do that because we recognize him first as the Lord. For that's the only way it makes sense. That we would not want to put anyone else over our life except for God and God himself. As we mentioned before, this idea, Jesus is Lord, was probably the first statement of belief in the Christian church. The Corinthians says that only if we have the Spirit can we even proclaim Jesus is Lord. It's this idea that when we proclaim Jesus is Lord, this is the first statement of belief in the Christian church, and we see that again and again. We, we see it in the book of Acts, in ch uh, chapter 2, verses 36. This is Peter preaching the first Christian sermon in the Bible at Pentecost, and he says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That Jesus is Lord. Further, and, and going further in, in uh, Romans chapter 10, 
verse 9, Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That this was the early belief of the church. Jesus is Lord, carrying so much information and it was in, in concise summary of who they believed Jesus to be. And it's why the early church was persecuted. In the Roman Empire, there, uh, if you lived in the Roman Empire and you wanted to be a good citizen, you had to declare Caesar is Lord. And the early church was wrestling with this, what does this mean? And they go, well, Jesus is the only one we can proclaim the Lord. And so they had to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so the early church was persecuted. There's so many traditions about, uh, and stories about the early church taking that stand, and so they were sent to the execution. They were sent to the Colosseum because they stood on this belief. Jesus is Lord and no one else. Some of the earliest uh, martyrs of the Christian faith that we know took this stand, like Polycarp. Uh, they stood on this and said, Jesus has not ever denied me in all my years. Why would I now Deny him. They stand on this truth. Jesus is Lord. Because what we believe about Jesus defines us. And everyone has to come to grips about who he is. Everyone in the whole world has to come to wrestle with who he is and come to a place where they can personally stand and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. For it is a matter of salvation, it is a matter of being right with God, it is a matter of the Christian faith. You have to struggle and come to grips with who Jesus is. And there's so many beliefs, as I said, about who he is, and people will make some claims, and come Easter time, you'll see the documentaries about who Jesus is, you'll listen to scholars trying to find the historical Jesus, and they, they come through the Bible and they, and they try to say, no, this, Jesus didn't say this, but they said this. And so there's a big wrestling match through the whole world, just who Jesus is. Well, C.S. Lewis, back in the 50s, famously coined this kind of simple problem and said, well, either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He says, because if you, if you look at Jesus and what he taught, and because what he taught was not just good things and do good things to people, he did teach that, but he also taught at the core of his message, I'm God, believe in me, and you will be saved. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught himself. And so if you look at Jesus and, and really wrestle with what he taught, you either have to come to three conclusions. Either he's lying his sandals off, or he's crazy if he truly believed this. Or he truly is who he said he was, our Lord. You can maybe expand that a little bit more. Ken Samples, another Christian philosopher, modern day, he expands it to include more categories, and he kept up the, the lovely alliteration um, that C.S. Lewis used. But he said, okay, let's put more categories that people might believe Jesus be. Well, Jesus might be myth. It's the idea that Jesus might be made up by his followers. He didn't really exist. Well, history kind of proves that to be wrong. Well, he could be a madman. Again, he, he's a person who's, who's, um, who is not connected to reality, and so he's claiming the things that are not true. Or maybe he's a menace. He's a liar. Or maybe he's a mystic. He truly was connected to God, but he's not who he said he was. Or maybe he's a Martian. Maybe he was an alien, came down and claimed these things. 
Well, when you disprove all those things or say, well, no, I'm not going to stand on any one of those, what is left? He is the Messiah, the one anointed by God to save his people. And so you have to wrestle with this truth, and we all have to. Why? Because as, as Jesus said himself in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church. Peter just confesses who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, P and Jesus looked at Peter and says, Blessed are you, Peter, part Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And all in you, on you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That Jesus is saying, on this rock, the confession that Peter stated, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, on this rock, my church will be built. On this belief, a correct belief of who I am, I'm going to build my fellowship, my assembly of people who believe in me, who are going to change the world. On this, I build my rock, and guess what? Not even hell can stop it. Not even the world can even falter it, that my church will be built and will be built on this confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I am your Lord. So what we believe about Jesus defines us. So who do you say he is? Who do you believe him to be? If you're not sure about Jesus, if you come to a place where I have heard about Jesus, but I'm not sure and I cannot stand and say with this church, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, I just ask you to look at Jesus. Look at him again and discover his majesty, discover what he truly taught. taught. Look in the Gospels and read one and see him for who he is and what he asks of you and what he has done for you. And if you say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, then I would say, know him, follow him, cherish him. If this is what separates us, then we have to know who he is and appreciate him for who he is and give our lives and submit to him for he is our Lord. I love and I don't love this statement by a, a pastor, Vody Bachman, when he says, the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. I hope that's not true. I pray that's not true for the churches in our area, for this church. For yes, we should be passionate, and we should be passionate about causes, and we should be passionate about helping people, and we should be passionate about making his kingdom known. We should be a passionate people, but that passion should come from a place of knowing who Jesus Christ is, for that changes us. For when we know who Jesus is, we're transformed. When we know who Jesus is, we are changed. When we know who Jesus is and profess him as our Savior, as our Lord, as the Son of the living God, as the Christ, the one sent by God, we are changed. We're taken from sinners and we're made into saints. We're taken from being dead in our sins and trespasses and made alive in him. Our sins are nailed to the cross with him and his righteousness is given to us. We we 
go from being orphans to being sons and daughters of the living God. We are fundamentally changed in our core. Our nature is made new, and we start progressing to be made more and more like him every moment of every day as we follow him. That's what happens when we believe in Jesus. It changes us, and it defines us. And so we should know our Lord. We should know our Savior, and we should seek to follow him all of our days. Know Jesus so that you can say proudly and without doubt or without an asterisk to it, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only living Son, our Lord. Because what you believe about Jesus defines you. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the fact that you did send your son. You send your son so that we can know him 